Attention everyone, this is an emergency broadcast. The unpleasant noise you are about to hear coming from your radio is not a mistake. Please do not turn off your radio, but turn up the volume on your receiver as high as it can go so that you can make the sound we broadcast as loud as possible. monster the Japanese call Godzilla has just walked out of Tokyo Bay. We begin the attack on Earth now. We've persuaded the thing to help you with what little power it has left. Godzilla now reigns supreme and will, in all probability, continue his march towards Tokyo, destroying everything in his path as they go. You may wish to deny it, but your eyes tell you it's true. Welcome to the Kaiju Cast, a monthly podcast, 100% dedicated to Godzilla and all of his rubber-suited foes. This is episode number 17 for the month of May 2010, and this month I'm actually in Boise, Idaho at the 9th Annual Anime Oasis Convention. I'm here to talk about Godzilla with these fine fans of anime. We'll be watching uh, the somewhat rare Godzilla vs. Biollante for this episode. Truly a treat for me, and I, uh, hopefully the audience here as well. We'll get to that later, however, because we've got some news and a review of the new Ultraman movie, but also, of course, some music to play and requests to fill. We'll kick that off with King Caesar's Prayer by Masaru Sato from Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla as a request from Jose to his brother-in-law, Pepe.
have followed up the King Caesar prayer with a request from Eric from the main title from Garamara versus Berugan by Chuji Kinoshida. And I hope I got that one right, man. And uh, then after that, the ending titles from Godzilla Final Wars by Keith Emerson. For Steve, a listener from Scotland. Uh, moving on, last month I was approached by a listener who is interested in writing a review of the new Ultraman film. Since I have yet to see the movie, I was very interested in getting some help. So uh, we discussed the best way to go about this, and uh, what I received was an audio review of Mega Monster Battle Ultra Galaxy Legends The Movie from James Bonney. So without delay, let's raise our beta capsules and hear what James has to say about the film. Greetings, kaiju fans. James Bonney here, and I'm here to discuss the new film from Subarai Productions titled Mega Monster Battle Ultra Galaxy Legend The Movie. Now, before I dive into the nitty-gritty, let me give you a little fans' perspective background on the film. Uh, in mid-2009, rumors began to trickle onto the internet. A production slate with the title Ultraman appeared on Warner Brothers' Japanese site with a planned December release. Uh, the fan community, community immediately began speculating not only, of course, what was going on with this movie, but why on earth Warner Brothers was attached to it. See, what a lot of fans don't know is that while Subaraya makes these films, they often have to partner up with another studio to co-produce and distribute the films. Uh, for the last few years, Subaraya was using uh, Chujiku. This time, they went over to Warner Brothers. Before long, official news started becoming available, and little did us Ultra fans know what exactly we were in store for. Uh, first off, we were promised an entire new scope for the film. No longer were we going to have the limitations of Earth. Oh no. Uh, this time, the story takes place on the Ultra's home planet of M78, in addition to many other planets. Uh, the legendary Land of Light, that to this point has only been glimpsed at, or shown as small set pieces like in the film Ultraman's story, was going to get the full treatment. We were going to see the entire planet and all of its landmarks. Very awesome. Uh, Subaraya also promised a brand new villain in the f in the form of Ultraman Belial, an ancient Ultraman that, with the help of alien ray blood, becomes the first ever evil Ultraman from the Land of Light. Under command of Belial are 100 monsters taken from their graveyard slumber and forced into Belial's aid, using his Giga Battleizer. Uh, quite a large scope, if you ask me, but it gets better. Uh, see, in the story, Belial, who is banished from the Land of Light for attempting to gain the power of the Plasma Spark, which is a device created by the Ultra's human-like ancestors to replace their son and keep their planet alive and thriving, a plan which kind of worked a little too well because not only did it save their planet, but the planet's in inhabitants grew to immense size and gained great power, thus giving birth to the Ultras. In his banishment, he was possessed by the evil alien Rayblood, who us fans know from the Ultra Galaxy tel uh, TV shows. Um, well, from that, Ultraman Belial was born. Ultraman Belial set out to seek revenge on his kin, but his plan was thwarted by the great Ultraman King, and he was imprisoned for eternity. However, thousands of years later, Belial was broken, is broken free by the evil alien Zarab and set forth to continue with his plan to destroy the Ultras and bring forth a new order to the galaxy. 
Reunited with his dangerous weapon, the Battleizer, Belial once again begins an attack on the Land of Light, and even with the planet's citizens of M78 prepared to do battle, there is little that can be done. Uh, Ultraman Belial lays waste to the citizens of M78 and gains possession of the Plasma Spark, turning the entire planet to ice. Now, a little fact I didn't really click until my wife saw the film, uh, she, she, she reminded me that uh, the Ultras are weakened by cold weather, which uh, is a little wink in the film. Um, in the series Ultra 7, Dan Morbashi is more than, in more than one instance, is uh, affected by the cold weather and is extremely weakened from it. So naturally, all the other Ultras have that same weakness, I'm guessing. And in the film, they're stripped of whatever energy they have left and frozen instantly. If not for Ultraman Taro's brave struggle to keep the last bit of light from going out, M78 would have been gone forever. The planet's future now lays in the hands of the only three surviving inhabitants, that being Ultraman, Ultra 7, and Ultraman Mabius. It's decided that Mabius must seek out Ray, the human Rayonix, to aid them in their battle with the evil Belial and his army of a hundred monsters. What follows is an epic journey as the surviving Ultra Warriors and Ray fight their way to Ultraman Belial and retrieve the Plasma Spark before it's too late and the Land of Light is no more. Aiding them in their quest is the Zap Spacey crew, Ultraman Dinah, and the extremely powerful Ultraman Zero. Now, to say this film is action-packed would definitely be an understatement. Uh, from the first shot, we're treated to a short but excellent battle between Ultraman Mabius and the Kaiju Bemular, who, I should note, is his second-ever appearance. Um, his first, many fans will know, is from the first episode of the original Ultraman series. Uh, following that battle, the film takes off in an almost break, neck-breaking pace. Uh, the fight scenes are not those in which we've seen before in an Ultraman film or TV show. Choreographed very fast and brutal, you would expect such fighting from one of Ruhei Kitamura's fighting films. Um, one excellent battle in particular involves Ultraman, Belial, and the entire fighting force of M78. Yes, you heard me. Everyone from everyone from the Ultra Brothers, uh, Ultraman Neos, Max, to the more obscure characters such as Ultraman Chuck, Beth, and Scott, great and powered, and uh, and then some. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Um, they're all included in this battle, which I have to say is a very long fight. It goes on for about oh, say I don't know, ten minutes or so. Um, and, and it's concluded with the villainous Belial taking on the father of Ultra himself. Uh, towards the end of the film, we're treated to another very long battle between Ultraman, Seven, Mabius, Litera, and Gomera against Belial's 100 monsters, which definitely does not disappoint. Uh, the makers of the film definitely had the fans in mind when shooting this battle. It is epic. Uh, also of interest is the introduction of a brand new Ultra in the form of Ultraman Zero. After four years without any new Ultra Warriors, this guy certainly makes up for lost time. 
uh, refreshing twist on his story is that he's not the squeaky clean character as the Ultra Warriors usually are. As, as a youth, he, he too attempted to steal the Plasma Spark, but was stopped by his father, Ultra 7, and banished to train with Ultraman Leo until his time has come to join with his people. Though he is troubled, he has also been well-disciplined and has been forced to partake in his training in Tactor Gear Zero armor. Yes, the armor has a name too. And it's meant to slow his movements down. So, um, not only is Ultraman Zero, not only does he prove to be a willing candidate to take over as Defender of the Earth, but quite possibly the most skilled Ultra ever in existence. I mean, the guy is just crazy. Um, now on to Ultraman Belial. Uh, now this guy is a true-to-the-heart villain. The guy does not have a compassionate bone in his body. Uh, he, he shows his uh, despicable nature very well in the film, whether it's attacking the peaceful mother of Ultra or even killing his own monsters in order to get a hit off an Ultraman. Uh, Belial is an eve is is just as evil as he looks, and his, with his sinister hunch and his large, freakish hands with their sharp claws, the guy is a true villain in every sense of the word. Now, the special effects for this film are very interesting because there are hardly any set pieces for this film, which is a total change of pace. Uh, the entire movie is filmed in front of a green screen, and the scenery is all added digitally, uh, similar to recent Hollywood films like um, like 300, Sin City, you know, where there's no actual physical s set pieces. Um, does this effect work? Absolutely. Without the boundaries of physical sets, the possibilities for these planets are endless, and Subarai takes full advantage of that. Uh, the legendary Land of Light, for example, is uh, it's just how you would envision a place where beings of peace who are born from light would originate from. The entire planet gives off a, it's a radiant green glow, and the planet's structures are all made of a green glass-like substance. Uh, true, it's a truly beautiful sight. While Belial's hangout in the monster graveyard is a rocky and steamy place with lava pits and sharp, jagged rocks sticking up all over the place, uh, these are just a few examples of the various landscapes we see in this film. And I assure you, there are plenty more to wow you. The cast? Um, well, since we're in a distant galaxy, the cast includes very few humans. I mean, uh, who we who do make appearances, we're all very familiar with, if you're uh, familiar with the Ultraman universe. Returning for their third Ultraman film in a row, Shin Hayata, played by Susumo Kurobe, and Dan Moroboshi, played by Koji Moritsugu, join another third-timer, Mirai Hibino, played by Shunji Igaharashi. Sorry if I got that wrong. I'm not 100% of my Japanese. Um, and they all play the, th the last three surviving Ultramen. They are, they're joined by Rei, played by Shota Minami, and Shin Asuka, played by Takeshi Suruno. In addition, we have the Zap Spacey crew, but sorry, I'm not going to 
go through all their names. Um, if you're familiar with them, that's who they are. In addition to a cameo from a familiar face, that's about it. Uh, the rest of the physical cast are either Ultraman or, well, monsters. Scoring the film is American composer Mike Verta. Uh, Verta does a he does an admirable job in creating the uh, the feel for the film with his music. While listening to the soundtrack, I kept being reminded of John Williams' scores in his various Star Wars films. I guess it's just a mere could or couldn't be a mere coincidence that both films take place in a galaxy far, far away. Now, while while watching this film, I could see now what Toho was probably reaching for in their last Godzilla film. Uh, fortunately for this film, the formula of adding everything plus the kitchen sink did not hurt the film's narrative, and the story still remained very solid. All in all, I have to say this film will keep you on the edge of your seat from beginning to end, and if you're new to the Ultraman universe, fear not. Although, the film's much more enjoyable if you have a previous knowledge of the Ultraman universe. If you're watching this with little knowledge, I don't see the film being too confusing. It's pretty straightforward, and it works It works great as a standalone piece. So, um, I wouldn't let that deter your decision to see this film. Uh, fortunately for us English-speaking fans, Subarai was gracious enough to include English subtitles with both the Blu-ray and the DVD release. And while they're stylized subtitles and not literal translations um, of what's being said, it doesn't hurt the film at all. Um... If anything, uh, if you don't, if you're not familiar with Japanese, you don't even, you don't even know the difference. Um, I was able to obtain the Blu-ray of the film, and uh, if you'd like my opinion, it's definitely the way to go. Seeing this film in anything but HD would not have the same effect. Plus, not to mention you have the benefit of the same region coding. Um, however, if you don't have the means to play Blu-rays. Then the DVD is out on Region 2 DVD, and also in a deluxe memorial box edition. That includes a replica of the film's uh, storyboard, amongst other goodies. Um, however, if you're going to play those, you do need a region-free DVD player. So just make sure you have that before spending the 40 bucks on the movie. Well, that's pretty much all I have to say about the film. Um... I definitely recommend it to not only Ultraman fans, obviously, but monster fans in general. I mean, this is just a complete monster jubilee. It's definitely edge-of-your-seat, entertaining, and worth every cent I bought it for. Uh, check this movie out as soon as possible. Thanks, and goodbye.
I just had to throw in a couple more tracks there. That was the main title for the new Ultraman film by Mike Verda. And the Biollante theme from Godzilla vs. Biollante by Koichi Sugiyama, which of course leads us into our next segment. Once again, class, it is time for our Daikaiju discussions. Every month, the Kaiju cast will showcase one particular film from the giant monster landscape and task the listeners with submitting thoughts, questions, and reviews for the next episode. Thanks to an online tool, I have randomly assigned one movie to each month, solidifying that I will be doing the show for a long, long time. For each episode, I'll compile the notes. I'll get and add that to the discussion. We're into the fifth assignment, so let's hear some details about this movie. In 1985, after a lackluster attendance from Godzilla Returns, Toho solicited the populace of Japan for story ideas for the next big Godzilla movie by placing ads in Japanese newspapers. One entry from a dentist and sci-fi writer named Shinichiro Kobayashi was eventually selected and uh, gave birth to the 1989 film Godzilla vs. Biollante, a direct sequel to Godzilla Returns, a.k.a. Godzilla 1985. Biollante literally picks up almost immediately after the ending of the previous film, with an on-the-scene news reporter detailing the massive destruction Tokyo is facing. The movie features a newer version of the Super X weapon ship, shown in 1984, called Super X-2. Super X-2 is piloted remotely and featured a new artificial diamond-plated reflector to catch Godzilla's beam and reflect it back at him. The film also features a fairly interesting international espionage angle, where several rival factions are trying to obtain Godzilla's cells. Oh, and Godzilla's skin cells themselves take center stage as well as they're sort of the catalyst for Dr. Shiragami's accidental creation of Biollante. According to Steve Rifle's book, this film was made by a new generation of filmmakers who grew up watching Godzilla. It was directed by Kazuki Omori with special effects by Koichi Kawakita. The suits were built by Nobuyuki Yasumura, who was a member of Eiji Tsuburaya's staff in the 1960s. Additionally, it was scored by Koichi Sugiyama and stars Koji Takahashi, Kunihiko Muramura, Toru Minigishi and a regular member in the Heisei series cast, Megumi Odaka, as a teenager with a psychic link to Godzilla, Miki Sigusa. The film was released here in America on home video in uh, 1992 by HBO. I remember checking out the local video rental store in Savannah, Georgia, when I was in college and being floored when I saw Godzilla vs. Biollante on the shelf. I think I even signed up for an account just to rent that movie. Back then, I really, really, really enjoyed seeing the movie, and uh, I was very excited that the film was the newest entry with updated special effects and a pretty cool story. Something that had the science fiction feel to it, but retained the awesomeness of the character where Godzilla really does seem like a big threat to Japan. But the Daikaiju discussion isn't just what I think. Let's hear what some of the audience here has to say. What would you think of the movie? I really liked it. What did you like best about the movie? I thought this had a um, far more involved human element than most of the other ones I've ever seen. And that really appealed to me. I really like the, the story behind the humans in this. Usually they're kind of boring and I'm kind of like, get to the, the monsters, get to the monsters. But It wasn't as flat. Yes. It wasn't as flat. What about you, man? It had a lot of really nice elements to it. The fact that they introduced a character who would be in the remaining five Heisei movies consecutively and the fact that they brought back elements from the one before it really made it feel like a sequel instead of just here's Godzilla again and what's he gonna fight this time cool yeah anybody else say what they liked about the movie I hadn't seen this one in years but uh, when I was a younger teenager this was actually one of my favorite ones there's a, a lot of elements that I like I 
I particularly like a lot of the early shots of Biolante in the lake. I think they're really eerie, and I think for me that made this one of the more effective giant monsters. Um, I also really like the human element. In particular, I like how uh, the sort of different countries are being played off against each other, and um, kind of some of the technological stuff that flows out of that, it almost seems like um, the threat in this one was brought about by the humans with uh, like the research into the um, the psychic abilities of the young children prompts the government of Japan to feel threatened by Godzilla who's currently trapped in the mountain and so they develop this bacterial weapon against him which makes the Americans afraid of them having it they try to acquire that and then the Ceradians step in and steal it from them um, and the threat they use is detonating the mountain, which releases Godzilla. And I think that adds a layer of complication to it that a lot of the other films that I've seen don't have. I think that makes it a lot more interesting. Very cool. Excellent, uh, excellent noticing there. That's cool. Anybody else want to say what they liked about the movie? I know I really liked, uh, I mean, I loved a lot about this movie. It's one of my favorites, um, specifically because, uh, specifically because of the design of Godzilla. But what do you think, man? Well, I'm basically going to repeat what two others said was I really liked the fact that they kind of broke out of their shell in the um, uh, political and uh, country-wise. Uh, for the most part, it was basically Seoul, Japan, and once or twice ever China was mentioned because he came close to the coast of China. Um, I think it was really neat that they brought uh, more of an influence of America and more an influence of kind of like almost like the Middle East and things like that. and. Um, yeah, they had that that mythical Seradia country, which was very Middle Eastern. I think uh, if you look at the times then, I mean, uh, Japan's uh, economic-wise, they were huge into trade, and I think that was just kind of them portraying their kind of less of uh, isolationist. Nice. Very cool. What about you? You have anything to add here about what's awesome about Godzilla vs. Biollante? Um, I actually really didn't like this movie. I haven't seen a Godzilla movie in years. But what I really liked about the movie was the atmosphere it gives. By today's standards, a lot of people would call the effects cheesy. I guess a lot of people would say that. Well, I like these type of effects because, to me, it kind of gives it a personality, sort of like something you, you would connect with. And also, I do understand the more serious side of the story to it. For example, how nationalistic countries can be, so they want to defend their pride. But I'll still confess, at the end of the movie, I still find it humorous because it goes kind of with my theory that you can't destroy Godzilla. He just gets bored with what he destroys. Oh, definitely. Yeah, you, this movie, I don't think, uh, you know, from the beginning, you know, when he gets destroyed, in the very first movie, you know, nobody successfully destroys him, even though everybody tries. What do you guys think of the actual Godzilla suit, the, the design of Godzilla in this? Oh, yeah, I really liked it. I, I thought it was really well made. I don't think you can really copy another suit like that. I think all the other monster films would just be pretty much a copycat of Godzilla. Anybody else? Well, if you look at the previous ones, um, it almost gives it uh, more of a softer look. While this one gives him more of a, a grittier, meaner look. Um, I mean, he has pronounced uh, like almost like fangs. Um, has a bit more of a pronounced brow and a facial structure. I'm, I'm sure you can count part of that, uh, not just that they wanted to give him more of a, a meaner look or a more of an aggressive look, 
but also the advancement of, well, say some of the, like the servos and things like that so that they could express things like that in the suit. Oh, absolutely. I loved how when he roared, you saw that he had like a double ridge of teeth on the inside. I thought that was really awesome. I really like um, they actually gave him the ability of a facial expression. I mean, at one point he makes the action of snarling. He's mm-hmm. moving his lips, his tongue is present. I was really blown away by that whole thing. And they did lots of the close-ups of the eyes, which were incredibly menacing I, to bring that back. You know, there were some truly intense scenes where he was just having showdowns with individuals that made you feel very small. Very good. Because I would be terrified. Yeah, definitely. I can't imagine, like, being on that helicopter platform, right? And the lady's, like, running up to Mickey. She's like, oh, Mickey, and I would be out of there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the helicopter pilots, right? They're like, oh, we're supposed to, never mind. <laughs> this crazy lady wants us to leave. Let's get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anybody else have any comments on the design of Godzilla? This particular design, meaning like the, hay- you know, this is, and this heralds the, the design used throughout the Heisei period. It's really, really nice design. In my opinion, they're, you actually get some shots of this Godzilla where he never even never looks better than this. I um, the thing that I noticed throughout the film is, uh, especially compared to the previous series, there really is like she was saying a lot of articulation to the face. But it seemed like they made certain specific choices that, if this had been uh, an American film, I don't think would have been made. Like although like you do see him snarling and things that he's not humanized in any way he looks like an animal he doesn't emote the way like an an american monster might depending on the film and i like that because it gave him this sort of like uh, there's a word i'm looking for and i'm not finding but he's like his his reactions are a little more anything like whether he's walking through a building or he's being shot with missiles or he's fighting this giant plant or he's having his own energy reflected right back at him he's just He's dead on. He's determined. He's just like an animal. He's going right for whatever he wants. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I think I might use that now. Godzilla-like determination. You yeah. know. <laughs> exactly. Nice. Yeah, I thought uh, his reactions in this made him very animalistic. Um, I remember when I got my... I, I used to have a cat. When I got my first cat, uh, I thought that his reactions in this movie mimicked that of like sometimes what my cat would do when he'd find like a roach and like sort of like move his head backwards like there's one point when i think it's the first time biolante's uh i think it's the first time biolante's vines start attacking and godzilla just sort of rears his head back and kind of does this like little tilt like you'd almost expect him to be looking at the phonograph from the rca logo <laughs> but yeah i really i love this godzilla design and uh um, specifically the way, uh, you know, and I'm sure I noticed, I don't know if you guys noticed, they use different suits, different builds of the suits. You know, sometimes his neck is a little bit stiffer. Sometimes he's got the animatronics inside. This one is the epitome of a Godzilla suit to me. If, if somebody was to just, in the, if the, you know, legendary pictures was to say, what should he look like? I would just point to this movie. Yeah, I can see that. So uh, negative aspects. I mean, not every Godzilla movie is, po- is uh, you know, is realistic or not every you know movie can be perfect far from it in fact with most of them did any of you guys think that you know a part of the story shouldn't have been in there or maybe uh would have changed something 
in the in the movie itself, in the plot or the direction or anything like that. Well, I'll throw in a little bit. I would have liked to see more about. I've already forgotten his name, but the the major geneticist, like why more motivation. I would like to get oh, to Dr. know him Dr. better. Dr. Shiragama. Yeah, exactly. And particularly his relationship with his daughter. It's established, but it's not very developed and it's a crucial plot point. So I'd Definitely. like to see more of that. He's also very stiff. I mean, and he I, is. Know, I know yeah. that the Japanese in general, uh, you know, contrary to a lot of movies you see, in general, they are very stiff and very emotionless. So I found it, I found him kind of almost dead on for what I would expect a real Japanese person to be like. But, Interesting, but in a movie, I definitely expect a little more uh, emoting. Let's say this is actually the first Godzilla movie I've personally seen from start to finish, and I feel like I really liked a lot of aspects of it. I feel like the fights scenes that with Godzilla versus Biollante felt like they were really short. I felt like I would have liked to have seen more interaction between Biollante and Godzilla at some point, more than just about five to ten minutes per fight because you call it Godzilla versus Biollante but like I said it's just my first movie so I was kind of expecting that there would be more fighting but that is the one thing that I would have changed personally myself coming in for as an outsider yeah well actually a lot of people have commented uh in the past towards me and you know I've made the observation myself that while Biollante looks super cool in my opinion I mean i the creature design behind the monster is amazing, and I think it's one of my favorites. Uh, really, as far as an opponent goes, it's just not not a worthy adversary, as one of my listeners uh, wrote in about. It's just Godzilla dispatches Biollante very quickly, both in the first and the second stage of its uh, evolution. So, yeah. Anybody else? Something you'd change, maybe? Uh, I agree, though, with the more Biollante. Um and I do think, I just want to say, I thought the general, the, the physicist guy, I thought he was stiff on purpose because he was supposed to be the tortured soul as a throwback to the original uh, oxen creator guy. Yeah, Dr. Sarazawa. I, that's actually what I thought they yeah. were going for there. But I think that um, while I did really appreciate how the humans drove the plot along, I do think it was just kind of too much going on in and out and it kind of got unbelievable near the end and just kind of was very, well, we've got five lines and let's tie them up as quick as we can. And yeah. that's kind of what I felt near the end. It was just being rushed and we needed to make an excuse to get rid of, well, we have to get rid of the tortured soul because he feels bad for creating it now and we got to make them happy couple. And it was just very quick. It all does tie up very quickly, but it also, it also, it all kind of, in its sense, the plot falls apart and, and you don't really get the sense that these people are connected at all anymore. You get them splitting off, you know, uh, the doctor dies, the couple goes off, it literally in the car, you know, they're about to drive off into the sunset if it weren't for Godzilla coming back and uh, walking himself into the ocean, so. Well, there was one question that was kind of raised for me during the film, and that was the part where uh, Mickey would comment that the doctor's daughter was in Biolante. So it made me imply, well, that could be, like, a good place to, like, you know, lear learn more about the relationship between father and daughter. And then it kind of implied that she no longer can be connected because Biolante turned more monstrous. And then at the end, after Biolante was destroyed, Miki's soul was released. And it was like, oh, this is a happy moment. But then because I didn't feel any development from that relationship at all or any knowledge of it, 
um, I didn't really feel the feeling of like being happy that she was released like I should. Yeah, it was a little a little weird seeing that I found that the picture floating up into the, you know into the the glittery glittery special effect op, uh, you know the glittery optical effect. Yeah, her her hair was it wasn't just a, a static photo. It was actually a video shot of, you know, of her hair like fluttering with the, you know, the wind in it. Yeah, I I personally I I think maybe I would have been okay if they had just once uh once Mickey said that Erica's soul was was kind of not connected anymore if they had just kept it not connected and Violante maybe just sort of burned up. Yeah, that's what I'm kind of saying and her soul was released. So yeah. that that just kind of raised questions for me. What about you, Jason? I was going to make a comment about the um well, the second comment about how you know, she'd wish she'd seen more action between Godzilla and Violante. And what I remember from, you know, first watching kaiju films as a kid, um, there seems to be a common theme. And that even if it's Daimajin or any of the one, it's like most of the action with the monsters fighting or whatever seems to happen within the last 20 minutes of the movie. And everything else before that is just the whole character development and everything before that. It, it just to me personally, it seems like a theme. So I don't know if it's just, you know, if, there, if there's any truth to that or... Yeah, there's definitely, definitely a uh, like as we were talking the other day. There's, uh, there's almost like a formula where, um, you know, you have a whole bunch of plot development before the monsters even come in. Not every movie's like that, obviously. You know, some sometimes Godzilla shows up right at the beginning, and then he kind of goes away for a little while while people figure out what to do, and then they comes back for the big battle. Um, but yeah, this this one definitely had a, like I wasn't paying attention to the times or anything like that, but it seemed like there was a big long area where there was just no Godzilla. Lastly, I just wanted to make a separate comment about, like, uh, Subaraya. This is a pretty big turning point for them as far as, like, filmmaking goes, considering it was 1989, I think it was. Um, Other American studios were really starting to experiment with CGI at this point, and they used some, uh, you know, CG elements, I noticed, and some for their special effects and had they wanted to put some more money into it they probably could have gotten some really kick-ass like expressions out of the monster's faces but they chose to stay with the practical effects which to me personally if you look back at the star wars films okay the new trilogies versus the old ones um the practical effects just seems to they hold a lot more um weight as far as believability uh you know even really good cg you can usually tell that it's cg and by keeping the practical effects you know i think that they really achieved a lot but um you know with the facial expressions and and just adding some more realism to it so go subaraya for staying practical and not going all cg go toho <laughs> toho yeah, sorry toho. subaraya but yeah oh. no subaraya big giant you know entity from from before we watched a little bit of ultraman earlier today so stuck in my head so got subaraya <laughs> in his head. um but uh yeah you know i i think that in general this movie is like i said it's one of my favorites you know if i had to and someday i will uh, rank all of my all of the Godzilla movies in order of how I like them, but this one would definitely be towards the top just because of what it tries to accomplish and what I feel that it actually does get to accomplish uh, as far you know in relation to other Godzilla movies and even other monster movies out there. Anybody have any final thoughts on Godzilla versus Biollante here? Well, I I know uh, you mentioned that uh, you thought that he was destroyed because of the release of her soul, but it kind of like left in that uh, kind of spore or uh, pollen uh, debris and it kind of like traveled that way 
I almost wonder if they're going to keep it on the shelf for a possible return. It'd be nice. It'd be nice. I'd say uh, probably not. Here's an interesting story about the Biolante suit itself. Uh, Toho is notorious for taking terrible care of their, uh, not of their solid props, but of their suits. I mean, they just, first off, they're made of foam rubber, so they deteriorate and uh, decompose. But they got the Biolante suit actually was so large that they just stored it right outside of the of the uh, warehouse. And at one point, Ed Gojitowski went to Toho. This is a, uh, an author in the Godzilla fandom universe. Uh, Ed went to Toho and went to their back lot and saw the remains of the Biolante suit, if you can call it that. And uh, there was like a family of kittens living in the <laughs> in the suit. <laughs> so uh, I think you know if. Biolante is a fantastic creature design, like I said. Uh, I would love to see Biolante return someday. Um, unfortunately, Toho seems to choose to bring back the super popular ones all the time, like Ghidra and Mothra, uh, over and over and over again. And, Me and Mechagodzilla. Mechagodzilla, too. Well, yeah, like I was saying, it, to me, I, it didn't feel like that it was destroyed. I just felt like it took a wounding blow and left. But one thing I'll say about... Uh, you know, with the cell or, you know, the the glitter going up into space is uh, in Space Godzilla, they're trying to figure out how this new creature has come to Earth and like how he was created. And they came up with two pot two potential scenarios. One was that uh, the the Godzilla cell, you know, the cells from Biollante went into space and that's what went into a black hole. Yeah. And then the other the other. um you know, potential explanation was that when Moth. Okay, so what's happens? <laughs> what happens in uh, in Godzilla versus Mothra is in the end, Mothra. And this is the 1992 film. Mothra leaves the Earth because she's supposed to stop some th outer space threat. They think maybe some of Godzilla's cells got attached to Mothra, and when she went into space, that's how they were space-born and went into the black hole. I know that the film Godzilla 2000 is about 10 years after this one, mm -hmm. God, just Godzilla 99 or whatever it's, you want to call it, but I know some similarities between the film and Biollante. The films both have to do with Godzilla's cells in some way and their regenerative properties. The monsters are both created in some way or another creating by Godzilla's cells and are supposedly indestructible because of that. At one point or another, the monsters both try to eat Godzilla the generals in the film both get destroyed in a building by Godzilla. That's right. That guy and yells at Godzilla at the end of Godzilla 2000. And then at the end of the movies, both monsters just disappear in one way or another, whether it's a spore cloud or if just kind of falls apart. Yeah. I, and I, I noticed that, too, because I literally just watched Godzilla 2000 the other day. And uh, I was like, why do these monsters think they can destroy Godzilla by eating him? especially by Alante because she just saw Godzilla blast all of her tendrils and you know with with uh, uh Orga the creature who tried to eat him in 2000 um that he had never seen Godzilla use his heat ray before so maybe I got that one but yeah it was just kind of neat to see that they kind of used elements from Biolante in that film it it just seemed really interesting to me that that was 
Yeah. I don't know if there's a connection there in any way, but it was just really interesting. Maybe it's a connection to the you know the positive elements of Godzilla versus Biollante, perhaps. I wanted to say, um, I noticed a lot of things in this film that seemed to me like they were deliberate references to a wide variety of other monster movies. Like I, I won't list them all off now, but uh, as an example, um, I thought it was notable that a lightning storm happens right before and as um, the geneticist, whose name I've forgotten again, is um, putting the, the components of the different cells together, it seemed very much like Frankenstein. That even though the lightning doesn't play any role in what he's doing, it comes in right on cue. And there seemed to be a lot of other things like that. Oh, yeah. He's got that whole mad, there's that whole mad scientist. Yeah, you know, and he's scene. working in isolation yeah. and nobody knows what he's doing. I also wanted to ask, uh, you'd mentioned in the introduction that this was a follow-up to a film that had not done as well as Toho had hoped. So mm -hmm. I was wondering, did the strategy of soliciting the public work, how did this film go over in Japan? I, you know what, that's an excellent question. I'm going to have to pretend that I know the answer or something and then find <laughs> out and then re-record this. No, um, I think it did okay <laughs> because what ended up happening is they... They did come out with one in 1991, in 1992, 93, 94, 95. Oh, okay. So they did continue it. Um, and I I can definitely find that out and figure that out. But uh, I don't have the materials with me right now that would say how well that movie did. I know that I, I really wish this movie was out on DVD here in America. And hopefully with the 2012 movie, there will be another resurgence where we, as fans, get to see more DVDs being produced. Yeah, that would be cool. That would be cool. I'd love to see like the rest of the Heisei movies subtitled as opposed to having to watch the dubbed ones. Even though I showed you guys a dubbed movie, um, you know, the there's some there's something about the Heisei dubbing that just drives me nuts. And uh, yeah, the subtitled versions are, would be nice to see for one. Anyone else? Uh, just a, a short comment that uh, I'd seen Godzilla and Destroya not too long ago, and I kind of wish that they would do more with Mickey's character because they, they say she has a psychic connection. They don't really tell you what she gets from him, like especially in this movie. She just falls down yeah. and faints. Well, she she d like I said, she does come back in the next every single one of the next movies, and she does get, I mean, her role gets bigger and bigger, and then... In the 91 film, she actually goes back in time to see the creation of Godzilla, and uh, and then she, you know, comes back to the present. And then, then uh, in Mothra, she's standing with the Japanese self-defense force the whole time and working with them. And then in in Mechagodzilla, she has a terrible, terrible uh, job to do, where she actually has to sit in Mechagodzilla and fire. Uh, a weapon that's going to blow Godzilla's uh, brain or his, you know, nervous system out. And she really hates the fact that she's being ordered to do that. So her character does continue to, to develop. And it's, it's a pretty cool thing because she's the only character in the Godzilla universe that really does that. Is it the same actress throughout all five? Yeah. Or yeah. However many? Same, same actress uh, portrays the whole time, uh, portrays Mickey the whole time. Yeah. That's cool. It <laughs> is cool. It is very cool. There are some other actors that you see and they have characters there's like specifically there's a um there's a general who shows up in the next few films and he's kind of a staple in the in the series uh for a little while but he's he's like <laughs> i think i mentioned this the other day like he's just kind of 
always upset that they can't kill Godzilla. But <laughs> what's the biggest thing that you noticed about Biollante other than the tentacles with the most noticeable feature? Size and the, the, the mouth of the teeth. And Kyle, yeah, well, Kyle uh, mentioned an interesting piece of trivia, I think it was today or yesterday, about uh, how the concept of Biollante came about. From a dentist, yeah. So, <laughs> I guess Man, what, that, that, maybe that's his own nightmare. They went. They were like asking for submissions from the public or something, and yeah, Dr. Kobayashi. Yeah, yeah. I mentioned that at the beginning of this. So, like, hopefully, it'd be cool to see like his someday. Like, find out what his reaction was to the movie. I don't know if anybody's ever interviewed him, but uh, yeah. So, thank you guys all for sticking around for the movie and for the discussion. I really appreciate it. I hope you guys all enjoyed it and. Uh, you know, make sure you take some stickers with you. And uh, let's find out what the listeners had to say. Jose wrote in that he uh, enjoyed the new spy versus spy Godzilla DNA and other telepathy elements of the film. But the film also had a really sad feeling to it with the death of Erica in the beginning. And even Biollante seemed sad. And I agree, Jose. Biollante's roar definitely turned into more of a cry towards the end of the movie, and you know, her death scene itself was less like other kaijus in uh, Godzilla's other films, where you seem to think, yay, Godzilla won, and you really you don't get that feeling from this film. I'm sure it doesn't help, of course, that the you know spirit of Erica sort of floats up into the, into the atmosphere. Robert notes that at first glance, the giant flower foe seems kind of lame, but uh, when Biollante reappears with that giant maw, we're treated to one of Godzilla's most frightening-looking foes. While the notion of capturing Erica's spirit in a plant might seem ridiculous to some, anyone who has seen Neon Genesis Evangelion would recognize that plot device. Additionally, Robert praises the spectacular special effects in Biollante, but also recognizes the disappointing score. Bill writes in uh, that he's not really a fan of this film, the human action scenes were awful with less convincing squib effects and a hand-to-hand fight at the end that doesn't even seem to be choreographed at all. And he uh, says it looks like a couple of four-year-olds fighting over a teddy bear. The terrible dubbing also threw him off. And uh, I totally agree, man. Like uh, Compared to the Showa series, especially the AIP uh, dubs, the versions of that Inter- American International Pictures did, the dubbing in all of the Heisei films is just pretty terrible. I do, however, have less of a problem with this one as uh, I had never seen a subtitled Godzilla film prior to my 1995 viewing of Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla and uh, Mechagodzilla. Personally, this one doesn't bug me as much because it is a little tiny bit nostalgic, you know, because that's what I saw a long time ago. Bill was also put off by the score, citing that it reminded him a little too much of the uh, original Clash of the Titans movie. While Biollante is an interesting opponent for Godzilla, she hardly seems a worthy adversary, but there were some positive points. The scene where the psychic kids kids all hold up their drawings of Godzilla gave him goosebumps. And while I don't agree with a lot of your thoughts on this one, man, I definitely concur about that scene. Alex wrote in, stating that Biollante is by far uh, his favorite Heisei film, managing to thrive on an original story that introduces a unique and visually dynamic foe Its strength lies in the story not feeling like the uh, Godzilla plot-by-numbers approach that the remaining Heisei films had. That pretty much wraps it up for this month's Daikaiju discussion. If you want to take part in next month's activities, 
you'll need to watch the 1965 Gamera the Invincible, which is a fan, uh, which is fantastic timing because Shout Factory just released that movie on DVD this month, uh, the month of May. So email your questions, thoughts, and reviews by the last week of the month, uh, last week of June, and I'll make sure to include you in the recording. Next up, Godzilla News. This is United Nations reporter Eric Carter with the news. The world is stunned to discover that prehistoric creatures exist in the 20th century. The armies have been alerted as we wait for more news from Japan. So once again, I'll say, you know, I don't actually pluck any of this news out uh, of, the, uh, of, the, uh, of the world by myself. I have help. I uh, like to go to scifijapan.com. I go to August Ragoni's blog, The Good, The Bad, The Godzilla. I also troll some of the forums uh, over on Club Tokyo to make sure I'm sort of keeping my finger on the pulse. Sci-Fi Japan has posted an article by Kim Song-ho about the in-production 3D Korean monster movie called Sector 7. Make sure you go check that out. It should be interesting. You know, uh, as far as monster movies go, Korea put out a really great movie called The Host. I haven't seen the sequel yet, but I'm looking forward to it. And uh, who knows, man, maybe this 3D monster movie will be the next big awesome thing. I'll have a link in the show notes, of course, to that Sci-Fi Japan article. Earlier this month, like way earlier, War of the Giant Monsters was presented at Viz Cinema in San Francisco's Japantown and showed films from the 70s, Godzilla vs. Hidra, Godzilla vs. Gigan, Godzilla vs. Megalon, and Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, all in Japanese with English subtitles. If anyone went to the show, I would be really interested in hearing how it went over. Uh, for more info, if you need it, go ahead and check out the link in the show notes to August's blog. Back to Sci-Fi Japan. Ultraman fans will have their hands full with two different reviews of Ultra Galaxy DVD releases, plus another look at an upcoming release in Japan of Ultraman 80, the last live-action Ultraman series of the Showa era. Earlier this month, I was checking out DeviantArt, which is, you know, DeviantArt.com, and I came across this guy's artwork. He does these sort of like retro style uh, movie posters for, you know, existing films. So he's got this really cool look going. And uh, I was kind of flipping through some of the stuff he had. And I found out that he sort of made his own posters for four Godzilla films. He did King Kong versus Godzilla, Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster, Godzilla versus the Smog Monster, and the original Mothra film. The designs themselves are just fantastic, and the dimensions uh, for these are kind of like the old speed posters from Subways. Uh, they're really cool, and I highly suggest checking his work out just in general. He's done a, a, just like a lot of posters. He's even done some Star Wars posters, and these are all, you know, him doing them for the sake of doing art. I don't think he... That I know these weren't used professionally for anything. And I thought they were really cool. So I sent him an email, and uh, and he got back to me. And I actually picked some up uh, from him. I got all four of the monster ones. So like I said, King Kong versus Godzilla, Godzilla versus the Smog Monster, Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster, and the original Mothra are now in my possession. And I'm going to frame them as soon as I can. But uh, they are fantastic. I'll take some pictures of them, show you uh, on the blog, or at least on my Facebook page, what they look like. Something else I forgot to mention is that if you are a local Portlander and over the age of 21, this month, Vendetta in Northwest Portland is the home 
of the uber-powerful Geek Trivia Night, where normally there are simply, you know, in quotes there, simply prizes for winning. This month is sort of like a be-all, end-all Geek Trivia Battle Royale Challenge. And the grand prize for the entire month, for, you know, if you win, if your team wins the most, I guess, is the ultimate geek vacation, airfare, lodging, and passes for two to the one, the only San Diego Comic-Con, sponsored by Things from Another World. As always, I'd like to say that if you found the Kaiju Cast through iTunes or some other podcast listing and would like to visit the website, just point your browser to kaijucast.com. And you'll have access to not only the current shows, but also the older episodes, show notes, links to other handy websites, vote in the polls, order a print as long as they're available, and, you know, send me an email too. That's right. I love hearing from you guys out there. Look forward to, you know, getting feedback, both positive and negative, and just, you know, drop me a line by emailing controller at kaijucast.com, and I'll make sure to write you back. Of course, the KaijuCast is also both on Facebook and Twitter. If you like the show, feel free to track my exploits on either or both of those social media websites. Follow the KaijuCast or become a fan on Facebook. Now, actually, I guess you uh, all you have to do now is just like something. So do that if you want to you know, see what I'm doing. I especially want to thank the folks this month at Anime Oasis, especially those who hung out and watched the movie and listened to me drone on and on about Godzilla and podcasting. It really was a lot of fun. Special thanks to Jason and his family for putting up with my shenanigans. Hope to hang out with you guys when you make it back to Portland. You guys rock. We're going to close out the show with a request from Steven that I did not play earlier. This is the Gamera March by Shunsuke Kikuchi. Oh, God.